Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. This is Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 19. We've got a great interview for you today. We will be joined by the masterful producer, uh, recording engineer, and mix engineer, Mike Fraser. We'll go through his discography in just a second, but suffice it to say, this guy has been in the studio with all of the greats. You're not going to want to miss this conversation. So let us pay some bills. Stay tuned. Lost Cabos drumsticks may be the best kept secret from drummers today. Lost Cabos drumsticks makes the finest tools to touch a drummer's hands in the business. The best news, almost every popular stick size is available in both white hickory and red hickory. If you don't know what red hickory is, it's made from the heartwood of the hickory tree, unlike regular white hickory, which is made from sapwood. Red hickory drumsticks will hold up to even the hardest hitting drummers. Their durability comes from the density of the wood, but they do not sacrifice the feel. Please visit LosCabosDrumsticks.com to learn more about their products. And don't forget to ask at your favorite retailer for Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys, we are joined today by the great Mike Fraser. Uh, Mike has recording and mixing credits uh, that include Aerosmith, The Cult, Metallica, Joe Satriani, Franz Ferdinand, Rush, you name it, this guy has been in the studio with them. Um, his first exposure, uh, which we talk about in our interview, uh, his first really big project, um, and it kind of happened by accident. He actually mixed Aerosmith's Permanent Vacation record, and then, of course, he was in the engineer chair for their follow-up to that called Pump. And Mike, uh, really, his career just took off from there. He has mixed uh, and engineered some of the great great rock and roll records of all time, including a whole bunch by ACDC. Uh, so I'm just thrilled to death to have him joining us today. So uh, without further ado, let's welcome Mike Fraser to the Drum Shuffle. Good morning, Fraser. How are you, sir? Great, Jamie. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing wonderfully well. Thanks for taking the time to come on the Drum Shuffle. We we certainly appreciate it. Uh, calling in from Canada today, I'm assuming. Yes, yeah, up here in uh, Vancouver. Vancouver, Canada. Yeah, well, you've had uh, you've had quite the career up there in Vancouver. So, um, <laughs> you know, we, we typically like to start at the beginning, but I'm actually going to start... In modern times, because I'm curious to know, is Little Mountain mm -hmm. Sound Studios still in operation today? Well, the building's still there. Uh, half of it turned into a, a rehearsal room, and the other half was still run as a as a studio. But recently, now um, uh, a school called Nimbus Recording has taken over the the uh, rehearsal side, and they're trying to restore it back to what it kind of was uh, during the, the Little Mountain days. So, uh, you know, the studio is kind of still there, but it, wasn't, it isn't Little Mountain anymore. I got you. Okay. Well, I mean, there were just so many classic records done there. And, you know, you took part in, in quite a number of them. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just crazy how much music came out of Vancouver in the, you know, the, the 80s and 90s. It, it was just yeah. insane. But so I, I guess walk us back, you know, how did you mm -hmm. start your affiliation there at Little Mountain as, I mean, I think you started out as an engineer and then you started mixing records that were done there. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly you have a lot of production credits as well, but, you know, walk us through how you got started uh, in the business. Well, I was um, phoning around uh, looking for a studio to, uh, well, actually I was getting, wanted to get some advice on a, a um, music school in town. And I phoned little mountain was one of the first ones I phoned and they said, well, you know, they couldn't really uh, point me in the direction of a school, but they said, uh, 
you know, they need a janitor. Would I want to come in and uh, at least get my foot in the door? And I said, hell yeah. So started there as a janitor. And, you know, I'd start at like four in the morning and sweep the floors and flip the mints in the toilets and all that kind of stuff. And at that time at Little Mountain, it was a jingle production uh, studio. So uh, the owners, you know, uh, wrote and produced jingles. So then uh, I started working uh, in the morning. I'd help the uh, engineers set up their morning sessions and all that and and, uh, did that for a few months. And then at that time, Bob Rock was a... uh, was an assistant engineer there and he was starting to engineer things so he'd come in at night and record you know a bunch of punk bands in the vancouver scene here so uh, i asked him i said hey do you need any hand uh, hand he goes sure if you want so i'd stay there and work with him so basically my day was four in the morning janitoring till nine working on jingles till six and then helping bob till about two in the morning on uh and the punk bands. So wow. <laughs> I was so, getting like two hours of sleep a day. So I grabbed the sleeping bag and uh, I moved into the loading bay of the studio. And I lived there for about a year and a half getting, you know, two hours sleep a day. That's sort of how I started. <laughs> well, I mean, that's insane, first of all. But, <laughs> you know, I, yeah. so you literally started as a janitor there, kind of yep. helping Bob Rock when he was first getting his foot in the door as a producer. Yep. Yeah, wow. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So that's kind of how it all started. And, you know, uh, I guess the biggest thing I learned then was, well, you know, one, that we all love doing what we're doing, so the hours didn't mind, but it's work ethic, you know? You work hard at something, you get rewards for it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, you're not a musician, correct? Correct, yeah. No, I couldn't uh, play my way out of a wet paper bag. <laughs> well, and you know, I think I heard a quote from you once that said, you know, my instrument is a is an SSL mixing console. You know, that's I, right. Which I think is a really cool way of looking at it. Um, you know, and just looking at your discography, it truly is a who's who of rock and roll. But one of the very first credits that that you have on your discography is a band called Prism. And that goes, you know, all the way back to to 1980. And you did the mixing on it. And if I'm not mistaken, Bruce Fairbairn was actually in that band. Is that right? Yeah, Bruce started out, uh, they used to have a horn section in the band when they first started out. And Bruce uh, plays trumpet and cornet and stuff. And at one point, you know, sometime in the 70s, they decided to go more of a sort of a rock vein and got rid of the horn section. So, you know, in essence, Bruce was kind of out of the job. So he says, well, I'll produce you guys then. So, uh, you know, one of the first records I worked on was Prism, but I was an assistant engineer. I never mixed any of the Prism stuff. But uh, so I worked uh, on a Prism record. It was the first one Bruce produced and the first one Bob Rock engineered. So that's how the three of us got together and, and uh, uh, that that sort of stemmed a lot of the, the beginning of all the, the big bands. You know, Bruce was such an amazing producer and Bob's such an amazing engineer. You know, that just kind of launched us sure. off, you know? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, you know, I, I don't think the record is, I don't think you're credited on the record, but, you know, kind of the, the first just, you know, huge rock record that I remember coming out of Vancouver, out of Little Mountain Sound, was, of course, Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a big one, for it, sure. It, right. Yeah. And then I think all the other bands went, oh, my God, we've got to go there and record. I mean, is that kind of mm-hmm. how that happened? Kind of how it happened. I mean, what what happened was, you know, after a couple of the Prism records, they were a Vancouver band. Um then Bruce came in with a, a brand new band called Loverboy. Yeah. So we did all the Loverboy records, and that was the first records that kind of started making some noise down in the states, you know, and really got more international attention. So I think it was from the Loverboy records that Bruce uh, pulled in the Bon Jovi guys. I see. And that's how that all got hooked up. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, you know, uh, around this time, there was a little band out of Boston that that started having a resurgence because they did, uh, you know, a a collaboration with Run DMC. And, of course, I'm talking about Aerosmith. And, 
you know, those guys um, got clean and sober around that time and they packed up and moved up to, to Vancouver to record a little record called Permanent Vacation. Right. Um, and of course, you were the engineer on that record and and mixed that record. Um, I, you know, I, so I've got to ask the dumb question. You know, obviously, you'd already been working in the studio and doing some stuff. But here comes mm-hmm. Aerosmith. Did you pinch yourself just a little bit sitting there at the tape machine going, man, I'm recording Aerosmith today? Oh, yeah, you bet. Well, on that record, Permanent Vacation, they came in, and, and I believe they were like six months sober when they started doing that record. And Bruce Fairburn was producing it, and Bob Rock started off uh, engineering it. So I remember the first day they loaded in all our gear, and Bob and I literally were looking at each other, pinching each other, going, I can't believe this. We're going to sit here and record Aerosmith. You know, it's just such a great moment. So we got into about a week's work of tracking the, the basic tracks, and at the time, Bob was in a band called the Paolas. Well, all of a sudden, they had a tour booked, and he had to leave the project. So Bruce says, okay, well, that's no problem. Mike can finish recording the record. So I moved up from being an assistant to recording the record. So we finished recording the record. probably took us, I don't know, four or five weeks. And um, one day, Bruce had to go to New York for three days. And he says, okay, when I'm gone, he says, can you just do a really quick, rough mix of all the songs so we can send a demo reel out to different guys and see if we can find somebody to mix the record. So we said, okay. So off he went. So next day I'm in there mixing the first song and Stephen and Joe walk in and they took a listen. They said, oh, they said, you're not really into this, are you? And I was crushed at that. Oh, they hate it, right? <laughs> and they said, no. They said, you, you don't want to rough mix this stuff. You want to mix it. Let's do it. So when Bruce got back, we had three songs mixed. So he was mad that... I didn't have the the whole thing rough mix for him. And Stephen says, no, no, Bruce. He says, just have a listen. So Bruce listened to the three mixes, and he says, well, I think we found our mixer. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that, so, was, uh, that so, was a pivotal mo- moment for me, for sure. So literally, they had said, you know, just kind of pull the faders up and get us a rough, and, and we're going to yep. see if we can find a mix engineer that'll take it over. And, exactly. Exactly. Oh, wow. How cool is that? I mean. Yeah, so- so I went right from being the assistant on the record to now mixing the record. So that was a, a pretty cool moment. Well, I, I'd say, and, you know, of course, you know, their their next record was Pump, um, you yep. know, d- done in the same place. And, of course, you engineered and mixed that. And, yep. y- you know, in effort of full disclosure, uh, back, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago when... You know, the band I was playing in at the time, we were recording our first record and we were we were doing it all ourselves. We used mm-hmm. to watch the video, the making of Pump, like every night oh. while we were tracking, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, to, to like to see if we could pick up on any of the tricks of the trade, you know, to make our record sound better kind of thing. Right. And, you know, you were featured quite a bit in that um you know, I, I just can't imagine how cool it must be to be sitting there, you know, with guys like Aerosmith and they're recording these timeless records. I mean, I just, you know, I can only imagine how cool that must be. Oh, it was totally amazing. And um, for me, the special thing on Pump was um, was we uh, we built all those little musical inter- interludes by scratch. Like none of those are samples or anything. So. You know, we'd get out there and, and, you know, on the hoodoo voodoo thing, you know, Steve would be chanting and we'd add we claps and all these little noises and stuff. And on one of the songs, I forget which one it is now, it starts off with some orca whales. So uh, we have a, or had a uh, uh, aquarium here in Vancouver. So we got permission to go down one morning before they opened and our little remote mics and everything. And they had the whale trainers out there and they had the whales swimming by for us and doing their little squeals and squawks. So we recorded that and that's what's on the record. So that was all cool little extra stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's fun. And probably one of the oddest overdubs you've ever done, I would say. Oh yeah. (laughs) 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 Well, I mean, it's just so, so cool. You know, these, these little behind the scenes stories of these records that, that are just, you know, I keep using the word timeless because they really Mm -hmm. are. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, so 
from a drummer's perspective, um, you, you know, and, and we'll go through the discography as we get through the interview here. But from a drummer's perspective, let's just, get, you know, stay with the Aerosmith vein on the pump record. The drums sound just absolutely massive. I mean, was that, uh, you know, is it more of the room that you're getting those sounds or was that all, you know, Mike Frazier magic in the mix? Well, uh, for me, there's not really a lot of magic getting a great drum sound. You know, it is a little difficult, but it, it, for me, it all starts with the tuning of the drums. You know, if they don't sound great on their own without room and reverb and all that kind of stuff, they're not going to sound great on the record. So you got to spend a lot of time and, and concentration on trying to keep the drums nice tuned the way you want them, you know? Sure. Uh, and then at Little Mountain, that was kind of our, our uh, big secret weapon was the loading bay. So we'd set the drums up in the, uh, in the actual studio, and then there's a side door you could open into the loading bay. Well, we'd open that door and, and make some baffles and kind of tunnel the drum sound in there. And what that gives you is a nice big room but it doesn't have all the splashy cymbals in it. So you can get the room up really loud without increasing the, the cymbal volume. So that was kind of our, the thing that made Little Mountain desirable in those days anyways, for all the bands. Sure. The big so, room sounds. so you could really get that subsonic and, and low frequency yeah. roar uh, that, that yeah. those records are known for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's the drummer, you know, Joey Kramer's, you know, one of the best drummers I've worked with, um, you know, I know him and Steven used to butt heads quite a lot because Steven started out as a drummer. I'm not sure if you knew that. But oh, yeah. So so Steven's a drummer himself, so him and Joey would have a few head-button moments. But, you know, I tell you, Joey's, you know, his timekeeping and all that is, is second to none. He was amazing. So, you know, not only you have to tune the drums good, they have to be hit properly, too, to get a good sound. Well, yeah, right. And and that just comes with years and years of playing for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> speaking of great drummers, um, you know, another record that is on your discography and it's one of my all-time favorite bands, um, you worked on Sonic Temple by The Cult. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was uh, Mr. Matt Sorum that, that uh, provided the drums on that record, correct? Actually, no. Oh. It was, uh, Matt played live with them for a number of years, but on that record and, um, and quite a few records we'd get him in you know, as a studio musician was uh, Mickey Curry. Oh, from Brian Adams' band. Yeah. Really? You know, he, he's a monster. He was great. I, see, I did he'd not know and, that. But yeah, he, I, he I don't is even a know if that's credited on there. I think it is. Uh, well, I would, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I would have to pull out my record to see. I mean, I just remember seeing Matt with them live in that era, you yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was really, uh, you know, the cult's coming out party in the United States for sure. You know, mm-hmm. I, um, and I think it it took them from, you know, just kind of a. a you know, I hate to use the word, but an esoteric band from from England, you know, to being in the mainstream. And, I, you know, they I'm pretty sure they opened up for Metallica uh, on on that tour um, and it got him in front of just tons and tons of people. But that's another record that sonically, you know, pun fully intended, just sounds incredible. Oh, yeah, thanks. Well, again, and then, you know, with Mickey Drummond on it, you know. Uh, he can really tune his drums well and hits them really well. Plus, he, he was great. You know, you don't only have to play him the song once or twice, and he knew exactly what he wanted to do, and he'd do what he wanted to do in the song. Sometimes Bob Rock is the producer, or uh, or the band would say, oh, can we try, you know, something like this? And, you know, okay, cool, and he'd adapt and do what people wanted, but you'd mostly just let Mickey have his head and just let him do his thing, you know? So, sure. Well, yeah, yeah, if you've got a great player behind the kit, you just kind of turn them loose and, and see what comes out, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't imagine too many people told John Bonham what to be playing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would say you're probably correct. And if you did tell him what to play, you might have a fight on your hands, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, you know, uh, he was not a guy to be messed with from what I've heard. Um, that's what I've heard, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and 
in this same era, you know, just looking at your discography, some some other bands um, that you uh, worked with during this time. Uh, Bad English was one that was just a huge record uh, that that you worked on. The Blue Murder record, which of course was you know John Sykes and and Carmine Apiece. I mean, just a fantastic yeah. record. And I know that's one of your favorites um, yeah. that you worked on. Tell us a little bit about working on that record. Oh, that was amazing. Well, uh, prior to that, and before I started kind of engineering, when I was still a second engineer, um, we did the White Snake record, you know, their big one. I don't know what it's called, just White Snake or whatever. Uh, and that's where I first met John Sykes. So uh, that's sort of where we forged our friendship. Now, fast forward a, a number of years and uh, he had put this band together and he wanted me and, and Bob to work on it. So away we went and, you know, what a three piece. So, you know, John and Carmine and, and, uh, it was Tony, oh, Tony Franklin. on Tony base? Franklin. Yeah. Oh yeah. So that was one of the funnest records I've ever worked on. It was just a blast. Well, and you know, of course, uh, Tony Franklin was in um, the the firm, I think, with mm-hmm. with Paul Rogers, and he's kind of known for his fretless bass playing. Was most of that record mm-hmm. done on a fretless bass? Yeah, it was all. That's all he plays is fretless. Oh, okay. So he he never yeah. switches. No, no. Well, amazing sound. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, sonically, that's going to make any trio sound fatter just just by, you know, the, the fact that it's a fretless bass. But yeah, that's one of those records that, you know, especially my crowd, you know, drummers, uh, you know, everybody mm-hmm. knows Carmine, obviously. And I would mm-hmm. say a lot of musicians had that record because it was just it just an amazing musical record, but sonically, mm. when you put it on, it just rips your head off. You know, it's, yeah. oh man, what a job. Big, big. You, big. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, that was a funny record too, because, you know, it was really, uh, I thought a fantastic record, great players. Uh, it was on Geffen Records at the time, which is one of the biggest rock labels at that time. And it did absolutely nothing. Yeah, they did a sale, but everybody, even to this day, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, everybody loves that record. I'm like, well, where were you when they needed record sales? (laughs) So funny. (laughs) It is, you know, and, um, you know, and sometimes some of those greatest records, you know, they go plywood, you know, as soon as they hit Mm -hmm. the shelves, you know, there's there's Mm -hmm. no attention, but it takes people 20 years to come around to it. You know, I mean, yeah. and that is certainly one of those records. But now I had it in 1989. Yeah. So I was like one of the 700 people that went out and bought it. Um, <laughs> right <on. laughs> um, it because it is just such a great record. And, and of course, I love John Sykes playing from his time in Whitesnake. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you mentioned that Whitesnake record, kind of the, the self-titled. Now, obviously, that's not their first record. But, you yep. know, it was the resurgence of White Snake, And my God, you could not turn on MTV or a radio station in 1987 without hearing, is it love or here I go again? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, that was a great record. Right. And a lot of people, you know, say, oh, my God, you know, Tommy Aldridge was so great on that record. But it was actually Ansley Dunbar that did most of the drum tracks on that record, correct? Yeah, Ansley did all the drum tracks on that record. And then John Sykes did all the guitars, where I know they had, uh, I think it was Adrian in later. Um, I know there was a solo or two replaced because um, David Coverdale and John Sykes sort of had a falling apart uh, halfway or three-way through that record. So uh, I'm not sure what happened and who played what once it left us. Right. David took it down to uh, Florida, I think it was, and finished it off down there. But, um, but yeah, John co-wrote and played on all the songs, so that's what I know. And that's another record that kind of, you know, at least in my opinion, kind of redefined what was expected of a drum sound in that era. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the drums were huge on that record. And, you know, I think everybody started 
okay, how do I get the Mike Frazier drum sound, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a, a, after that? So it's kind of yeah. cool to see, to hear some of that behind the scenes of, of the loading dock and, and how you guys were getting those big sounds. That's just amazing mm-hmm. to me. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. good to hear. Thanks. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I think you're probably best known for your incredible work that you did with ACDC over the years. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, You you were on, um, you know, some of those really, really big records that they put out um, in that era, starting with the Razor's Edge. And, you know, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about Thunderstruck because... Mm -hmm. You know, that was just one of those songs. And I've heard some of these stories before, but tell us a little bit about Thunderstruck and and what you remember about tracking that song. Well, what happened on that record was uh, their brother, George Young, uh, had started the record, uh, I believe, in a studio in Ireland somewhere. And either he got sick or a family member got sick and he had to pull out of working on it. So they had most everything already recorded for that. So they contacted Bruce Fairburn and they said, hey, we just need to come in and and do some vocals uh, and put on some guitar solos and uh, and then mix it. And Bruce says, okay, sure. So they came out to Vancouver and first day we go in there and we go to sing one of the songs. And I was in a wrong key for Brian to sing. So we had to change the key of the song. So we ended up re-recording the bass and the guitars to change the key. And uh, Malcolm liked the sound so much better, we ended up re-recording all the instruments. But most of the drum tracks are already done. I see. Um, we did record, uh, and at that time it was uh, Chris Slade was playing with them. Right. And we did record, I believe, two or maybe three songs uh, on that record. Um, I think Love Bomb was one, and maybe Mistress for Christmas or something was another one. So I didn't record the drums on Thunderstruck, but uh, okay. you know, we added to them. <laughs> And again, that's another record that, you know, immediately when you put it on, you know, you're listening to rock and roll, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it it comes right out of the speakers at you, you know, which I think is just uh, amazing. Um, And, you know, I hate to jump around so much, but there's just so there are so many great records that that you have your hands on. I also want to talk about the incredible Coverdale page record. Um, Now, this was early 90s and, you know, Led Zeppelin hadn't been doing a whole lot of stuff. Um, You know, you hadn't heard from Jimmy Page in a while. And he and David Coverdale got together and did a record. And uh, of course, um, I think the drummer on that was the great Denny Carmice. Um, Uh And you are actually, I think, a co-producer on that record. You engineered it and mixed it. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Now, I know you had to pinch yourself to say, oh, man, here's Jimmy Page. Oh, hell yeah. Well, you know, I think the connection on that one was, you know, number one, Geffen, because I've done uh, the main guy at Geffen there was a guy named John Claudner. So I'd done, you know, all the Aerosmith stuff and. Blue Murder and a bunch of that, so that was the connection. Also, David and I had worked together on the on the uh, White Snake stuff. So they said, "Hey, you want to you know, meet up with Jimmy Page?" And I'm like, oh, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> right? No, so, I, I I don't have any time for Jimmy Page yeah, today. Yeah. Right? Yeah, not not today, sir. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, we had a nice meeting. Jimmy and I just connected right away, and uh, and yeah, that. Uh, that uh, Coverdale Page record was was great. You know, we recorded all the drum tracks and and most of the stuff in uh, Vancouver, and then we went down to Florida because you know David likes to sing down there with the the sort of the the warmer weather and all that. And Jimmy at that time I think had a house down there, so we went down to Miami and I think we we're in Miami for like nine months. <laughs> oh wow! And then we uh, and then we uh, when we got everything done. Um, we went over and mixed it at Abbey Road Studios, so that was pretty cool too to be able to say I've, I've worked in Abbey Road Studios. So that was a good record, though. It was a long record. I think it took us a year and three months to to finish it all off. <laughs> that was a long go. <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, Jimmy Page is kind of known for that, you know. Mm-hmm. Of uh, you know, he's pretty particular about how things sound. 
Um, you know, so in that record was, you know, I, I don't think it got the attention that it needed either. Um, you know, quite, quite honestly, because it is just absolutely fantastic. Um, just so much good stuff on there. And, you know, uh, I know that, um, Eddie Trunk, uh, who is, you know, Mr. Hard Rock, I, I listened to his mm-hmm. show on, on Sirius every now and then, and you were on his show not too long ago, but uh, yep. he, he had David Coverdale on, and, and David said, you know, I've actually been talking to Jimmy about maybe doing another record. Um, do you, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, well, I was so you say, oh, wow, I was, my next question was going to be, do you have the scoop on that, or are you? <laughs> no, no, I, I haven't talked to either of them in, in, in a while. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, w- I would be kind of surprised, you know, because David's still kind of doing this white snake thing. Um, and, you know, none of us has gotten any younger. So uh, I'd be surprised if they did, because then they'd have to tour it. And that was one of the reasons the, 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 the Coverdale Page record didn't do anything is because uh, there's some conflicts with trying to get them together for touring. So, if you don't have a tour, you get nothing to promote the record with. So that's sort of what happened there. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I wish they would do something else because some of the material that came out of that was just so great, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I certainly hope that you're involved if that does come to fruition for sure. You and me both. That'd be fun. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, and, you know, moving through your discography, a couple of other records that you were involved with, and I have to get this out because there's just so many Metallica fans out there. Um, you were involved in both the Load record and the Reload record, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and that was. Uh, you know, of course, everybody knows Bob Rock produced the, you know, the so-called Black Album that sold, yep. you know, four bazillion copies. I mean, it was just everybody owned that record, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, Metallica kind of, they they changed their look for sure. And I remember everybody said, mm-hmm. oh, my God, they've sold out. You know, they cut their hair, all that stuff. But those were two mm-hmm. really good records. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I've read stories where, you know, Bob gets a lot of the blame for the change in Metallica and, and my time with them, uh, it's, it's all the band. It's what they want to do. And Bob was there to help facilitate what they wanted to do, you know? So, uh, it, it, you know, even though you're the producer, you don't make the record as a producer that you want. You make the record that the band wants, and that's that's your kind of main job. So, but I really like those records. Um, it, it, I was asked to come in. Uh, Bob Rock produced it, and a friend of mine named Randy Staub was the engineer, and uh, they, they were mixing the record. And what it started out, they were going to put out a double record. Uh, so they got me to come in to help Randy mix because they wanted to spend, usually mix a song in a day and they wanted to spend like four and five days per song. So on a double record, it would have taken them months to mix. So, uh, they had me come in. So I was in one studio in New York and Randy was across the street in another studio and kind of double duty like that. So, um, about halfway through the mixing process, they said, oh, you know, let's just put the, you know, put it out in two halves called one load and one reload. And that's what they did. <laughs> so it started out as a double record. Okay. So, well, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, again, those are, you know, really good records and they sound incredible, obviously. Um, so it's kind of cool to hear some of that behind the scenes that, you know, they're, they're taking forever on the mix and, and then decide, okay, well, we've got half of it done. Let's put it out kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I thought there's some cool songs. Like I'm for sure a, a fan of the old Metallica and the more sort of metal part of them, but I like their progression into, well, let's try this. And they weren't afraid to try anything. Um, you know, I, I wasn't involved in the, uh, in anger but you know you hear a lot of people complaining about that and you know again it's it's kind of the the band's experiment well let's try this okay that didn't work <laughs> you know right but i like a band that keeps trying to experiment instead of just well let's just play the same old song again you know <laughs> so 
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that brings up a really good point. You know, you mentioned St. Anger, you know, um, obviously you weren't involved in that or the snare drum would have sounded better. Uh, (laughs) Well, see, I just uh, disagree because, you know, Bob Ross engineered some amazing sounding records. And that, again, is what the band wanted it to be. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, so, you know, yeah, I mean, even I, if I was involved, that would still sound like that because that's what the band wanted. So. Right. Well, <laughs> I kid because, you know, uh, yeah. amongst us drummers, that is like one of the most derided snare sounds in the history <laughs> of recorded music, you know. <laughs> Um, (laughs) you know, so, I mean, it's very, it's almost infamous now. (laughs) It it really is. I mean, and that joke, you know, it it never gets old. It really doesn't. And, you know, I've heard Lars say, look, you know, it's, it's what we did on that record. You know, it it wasn't like, oh, let's, (laughs) you know, let's make the snare obnoxious. It was like, it was just where it fit in the mix, which, which I found pretty, pretty interesting. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, another record that was really big in my playlist, um, and I think it's one of the the best albums from this era from this band was the Van Halen Balance record. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you were responsible for the mix on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Sonically, you know, and, and again, Van Halen made a change. You know, they they parted ways with David Lee Roth. They brought in Sammy Hagar, and and this has been talked about a lot. You know, it became more, um, I guess, keyboard driven at that time. You know, they had started kind of making that shift. You know, with the last record with with David Lee Roth, um, but the Balance record, you know, is. I think it's when they became fully realized uh, as not a heavy metal band anymore. It was still Mm -hmm. heavy rock. Don't get me wrong, but Mm -hmm. the songs on there and sonically, it was just, it was made for, for radio in my mind. It just sounded so good. Yeah. Probably they steered a little bit more towards the pop side of music than the heaviness of the music. Sure. Exactly. Um, what do you remember about that record? Was that kind of a conscious decision from the brothers to and Sammy to do something that was more pop oriented or is it just the way it came out? Well, you know, uh, going back on that record, I had hooked up with Eddie and I went up to his studio um, to work on some demos with him and had the guys come in and and uh, worked with Alex, and he's, Alex has got a really interesting approach to his, his drum sound. He gaffer tapes his snare drum head with, God, I don't know, three or four layers of gaffer tape. Wow. And then tunes it up as high as it can go, and that's how he gets that kind of pock, 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 you know? Yeah. The bizarre, but that's how he does it. Anyways, so we did a bunch of demos. Great. Okay. Uh, he says, then... Um, Eddie was saying, well, you know, we've been looking for a producer. And I said, oh, I should hook you guys up with Bruce. He's awesome. So I hooked him up with Bruce. Well, when it came time to do the record, I was in the middle of another project. So I couldn't couldn't do the recording of it. But um, uh, Eddie said, well, make sure Mike mixes it. So that's, that's how that all came about. But I think with them going towards more of the pop sound, that's sort of what everybody keeps wanting to do, or at least in those days, was to to really get your record sales going, you had to have a airplay and a lot of airplay. So you had to kind of, I wouldn't say water things down, but you know, uh, major radio stations would not play heavy rock. So you had to kind of, you know, put more keyboards and stuff. So I think they they never said anything, but I think that was sort of their thought. And at the same time, Eddie's sort of main or at some time prior to that, his main guitar head had blew up and he couldn't get it fixed. So he was experimenting with different guitar amps and stuff, and he came with his nice wide stereo chorusy sound, which he had liked. And then he's quite a good keyboard player, so he started writing and playing more stuff on keyboard. So that's sort of how that happened, you know? Yeah. So, well, so I mean, it was kind of a natural progression, and it, and it yeah. happened kind of thing. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, you know, again, your your discography is just so incredible. I'm assuming that the relationships built w- with 
with Sammy during this time kind of led to your work? Um, and obviously you've done a lot of Joe Satriani records. I'm, I'm assuming that led to the chicken foot stuff and, <laughs> and, and working with yeah. those guys on, on that project. Yeah. Well, it didn't, it didn't hurt. I mean, the chicken foot stuff came more out of my relationship with Joe, but you know, when Sammy heard I was coming, Oh yeah, Mike and I, Oh, it's great. And, and then same with, um, with Mikey too, cause on the Van Halen stuff. So there was, you know, it's funny in this business There's a, it's quite a small family when you really get down to it, you know, everybody knows everybody and friends with everybody. So, you know, it helps when you're, you know, working the tense hours trying to get something really good. If you're all friends and family, you know, kind of thing. So sure. yeah, that's what happened. And, and, you know, that's, you know, getting us up, you know, a little bit closer to, to modern times. Now, uh, you know, another band that, that I love, um, you know, I, I'm in Kentucky. So, you know, I kind of grew up listening to a lot of Southern rock, you know, and nice. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, you just can't escape it in this part of the country. You know, I mean, you can yep. turn on the radio right now and probably hear Leonard Skinner someplace, you know, it's, yep. yeah, or, or an Almond Brothers or, exactly. or one of my all time favorite. Like I don't really listen much to music for pleasure anymore because it's sort of work to me, but uh, one of my guilty pleasures is drive-by truckers. Oh yeah. I love those guys. <laughs> yeah. What a fantastic yeah. band. And you know, one of my favorite artists right now is Jason Isbell, who spent quite a bit of time, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in that band and, and his solo career is just blowing up right now. So, you know, cer- oh, great. yeah, certainly one of my favorites right now, but you did mm-hmm. some mixing on a, a, on a great band, uh, called Blackberry Smoke and, oh yeah, those guys are awesome. Y- yeah. Um, that record that you worked on, uh, the Whooper Will, uh, was, mm-hmm. you know, it was kind of their, their big coming out party. And you mixed quite possibly, I think it's their set closer to this day. Um, it's a song called Ain't Much Left of Me. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. So how did you get involved with those guys? Was it just a, hey, here's some tracks, we need it mixed? Or were you involved in the recording as well? No, it was just the mixing. You know, that's, uh, I guess, primarily what I do is I'm a mix engineer. You know, I've recorded a bunch and I've produced a few things, but I think mostly I'm a I'm a mix engineer, and you know, I can't, I can't quite remember how we hooked up. It could have been through um, Clay, who's in Zach Brown band, because I did a little bit of work with them. Um, and it could have been him saying, "Hey, I got this guy, Mike Fraser," and I think maybe it came that way. Okay. Uh, so I never really met the guy. You know, met them through emails and I think on a couple of phone calls, but I've never actually physically met the guys. But oh, I love doing that record. That was a lot of fun. It's tried and true Southern rock, no doubt about it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it's good stuff. Um, now, yeah. I, I know um, you have an association with with a great band right now called The Wild, um, mm-hmm. and, and you've done some some producing with those guys. Um, you know, tell us a little bit. Tell our listeners a little bit about that band because I, I don't think they've quite broke through yet, but they're really good. Yeah, they're getting there. They're just on the early stages of, you know, it, it's really hard for a Canadian band, and especially right now, uh, to get across the border to come down there and work. There's so many hoops they got to jump through to, to get there. It's almost killing things off. But, you know, it's really tough being a band in Canada here because everything's so far apart. You know, you got to drive hundreds of miles before the ne- nearest little town. So, you know, but when you go out and tour Canada, you know, you... you you're lucky if you break even just with the cost of gas, you know? So uh, all our band, you know, we try and, and come down to the States and turn the States onto the music. And, and uh, it's sort of difficult, but, you know, they're, they're getting there. Uh, we had hooked up with the Wild, uh, and I did an EP for them. So that got a little bit of attention, got them signed to E1 Canada, and then E1 Records uh, in the States picked them up, which led to them also getting picked up in all of Europe and stuff. So it's starting to kind of, gears are starting to click in now. Uh, I think it was a year ago. It might even be two years ago now. God, I don't know. Um, we did a full record. So that's been out for a bit. And uh, Dylan and the boys have been down there a couple of times touring. Uh, I think they just got home. They're off to Europe next. Uh, but I believe there's some more summertime stuff coming up for the States and festivals and stuff so yeah you know have your listeners 
keep an ear out for for the wild. They put on a great show. They're going to love them. Well, and I mean, it's it's good rock and roll music. I mean, you know, and, yeah. and there's so little of that now. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, That's it's great. it's uh, it's hard. So if you're looking for, you know, a, a good rock and roll band, the, the Wild is definitely one that I would recommend everybody listen to. And and it's going to sound good because our guest, uh, you know, produced, engineered <laughs> and mixed <laughs> all this stuff. <laughs> Jamie, uh, I'll send you the check tomorrow. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, it's E A D S is the last name. You know, a lot, lot, of, yeah. lot of people misspell the last name. Um, is that the, with three zeros or four zeros? Uh, four, please. Uh, the more zeros you can put on that check, the the, the more I'm going to like it. Um, there you go. <laughs> well, you know, all joking aside, um, you know, you've just had a legendary career, and you've been in the studio with all these just legendary bands um you know give us a good piece of advice now you know most of my listeners are obviously going to be drummers because you know most Mm -hmm. of our guests are drummers but you know Mm -hmm. what is you know what's something that that i can do as a drummer when i'm going into the studio if if mike frazier is going to be engineering um and, and mixing my record what do i need to do before i show up to start tracking drums well, I think one of the, the, for me, one of the most important things a musician can do is get your chops together. And that's whether you're a drummer, guitar player, singer, whatever. Work the hardest on that because I've seen over the years kind of the musicianship is is uh, easing off because there's so many computer programs that can help you out. You know, everybody edits the drums to the grid now, so the drummer doesn't really have to worry about playing in time. Uh, there's auto-tune to help singers and, and actually they can, you know, tune guitars and stuff for you. So all that is kind of being lost in, I guess they're trying to do records quicker because quicker means less money spent. Mm-hmm. But really what makes the records go quicker is if you play it right the first time. <laughs> yeah. And when you're playing live as a band, all the little time and wanderings doesn't really matter if you guys are locked. Uh, my main poison point in case would be ACDC. We don't do any editing on that, and really all the records are live with, a, with the vocals and lead guitars overdubbed. So, you know, you can really cook and sound great as a band if all your chops are together. So that's kind of the main thing. And, you know, I know practice, practice, practice is boring, but that's what really lifts you above the, the average player is well, get good at it. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it's what makes great records. Uh, yeah exactly you know well so that leads me to kind of another line of questioning i mean you've been involved since the days of you know splicing tape you know when you were recording to you know eight track you know half inch or or three quarter inch tape and if you did do any editing it was with a razor blade right i mean that's right um which i think is a lost art form i mean heck you can't even find reel-to-reel tape anymore uh, hardly or splicing tape say oh do you have any splicing tape you kind of get this deer in the headlights look (laughs) exactly so as technology has changed you know with pro tools and and you know all the stuff do you you know i know it makes your job easier with the automation in pro tools and and you know all those things but do you as a professional engineer and and mix engineer do you wish it would go back to the old way or is there good and bad from both i think there's good and bad from both because um these sort of modern uh, conveniences were invented because of you know, when you really, you know, you think back in the analog days, it's the glory days and that, but when you really think back there, it was a lot of work and it was a pain in the ass. And, you know, the band would finally get a track done. Okay, we've got to do some editing. Well, sometimes it would take you eight to 16 hours to chop tape before they could play again. And it's a real vibe killer, you know? So these things came out, but I think people are too heavy handed with it. Just because you can grid the drums doesn't mean you should. Right. So uh, like a good producer will be, no, don't touch it. Just leave it. You know, okay, that little bit, you know, going into the first chorus is way too rushed. Okay, let's edit something in there that's not so rushed. Instead of trying to move each individual kick and snare to to slow it down and fiddle the cymbals so that you don't hear the edits in the rooms and all that, just cut in a piece that was right. Or if it was not, overdub the drum, just do a little snippet 
and make it right and then put that in. You know, so be a little more light-handed on the technology. Use it as a tool, but not as a crutch, you know? I'm, hey, you're preaching to the choir here. You know, I mean, I, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I do a lot of session work and, you know, when I go in, I I am prepared to play with a click. You have to be Mm -hmm. in this day and age, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I did a a country record a a few years ago, uh, you know, a couple years back. And when we went in, it was just a duo. When we went in, we wanted to do everything to the click. That's what the artist wanted. You know, I want everything in perfect time. And so we tracked a couple of songs that, you know, to a click, everything was snapped to the grid. And I said, let's try that last song without it. You know, let, mm-hmm. let's just see mm-hmm. what happens. And the artist was like, oh, man, that sounds better. You know, yeah. if you listen to I mean, you mentioned John Bonham earlier. If you try to snap some of those classic Zeppelin songs to a grid, he's all over the place. Yep. Charlie right. Watts yeah. all over the yeah. place and all those classic Stone songs. So I'm guessing some of these classic records that you worked on, those guys aren't playing to a click, right? Uh, a lot of them, though. Um, there's some drummers like Mickey Curry is really good at playing to a click, but it's almost like he listens sort of half to it and it's to keep him in the zone. But, you know, like when you're looking, uh, say, on, in Pro Tools on where his kick and snare hitting versus the click he's pretty on it but you know going into a fill he'll speed up a bit or or a chorus he'll speed the chorus up so his kick is there just ahead of the click and then when the verse comes they slide back just behind the click so that's what gives you the feeling of excitement in the chorus but he could do it in a way that you're not feeling it pick up and slow down you know and that's why you know when you're doing a record um like in the old days, a lot of the records were a lot of live because you're now playing live with a guy. So if he's speeding up, you're speeding up with him. Later on, when you go to replace your guitar track, it's hard to we say it's hard to get back to the party because you don't know the little nuances of the speed. You got to learn them again, and it becomes a pain in the ass. So that's why people start gritting the drums. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, I mean, I agree with you. It is good technology. You know, if yeah. first of all, as as a drummer, you know, I'm going to speak as yeah. a drummer here. If I can't yeah. play in time, I probably don't need to be doing a record. Right. I mean, mm. <laughs> my tempo should be pretty good, but mm-hmm. if if you're using it, like you said, as a crutch, you know, and I don't really have to play all that good, you know, mm-hmm. what, what's the point? You know, I mean, you, yeah, you got yeah. drums in a box, right? I mean, you yeah, can just yeah. you can just program it and, and, and make a record that way. And unfortunately, I think that's what a lot of people are doing, uh, you know, in yeah. this day and age. And yeah, it's sort of a, a lost art form. Let's get in there. You know, I think also what's what's kind of happened, like in the old days, like you don't want to just replace your drummer because he's not, you know, absolutely click perfect kind of player. But what we used to do in the old days is hire a session guy. So, you know, bring Mickey Curry in and he can do it. And then your drummer can play all the live shows and be the drummer of the band and you don't even have to credit Mickey. But nowadays, instead of spending that money, which is quite expensive, you just grit it. You know, right. if the drummer can't play, you've got to be able to make it sound like he can. So, you know, I can see why it's there. That's why I reiterate again, work on your chops, get yourself so that you can, you know, practice with a click. doesn't mean you always have to play with a click, but if you practice with a click, then your muscle memory is going to get there and you're going to understand what it is to, to play in time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, great advice from a guy that has recorded all the greats kids. Um, <laughs> Mike, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, and, and mm-hmm. I, and I don't want to, don't want to keep you over, but, um, something that, that I, I'm curious about if a band out there, you know, everybody has a studio in their bedroom or their garage now for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. if a band out there, you know, has, has tracked all their instruments and they say, you know, I'd really like to hire somebody like Mike Frazier to mix this. Uh, I'm sure you're open for business. How do people reach out to you and, and, uh, you know, how many mortgages are we going to have to take out to, to, <laughs> to hire you to mix a record? Well, uh, I could be reached at Mike at Mike Fraser 
Fraser is spelled F-R-A-S-E-R, not like Fraser. <laughs> right. Um, so you can find me on there. My I think uh, my website's the same thing. You know, just look for MikeFraserMix.com. That'll be my website. Um, and you know, I try and accommodate uh, lots of budgets. Uh, you know, I will not let you uh, mortgage your grandmother's house to pay for me. <laughs> you know, I figured if you don't have the money, then you know. Uh, you know, do a GoFundMe or something like that, but I don't want to be responsible for your grandmother's house. But, you know, I try and accommodate most sessions. Uh, I don't have my own studio, and I only mix out of a, a certain few studios because I like to, to mix on the SSL board. So that's a, a hard cost I have no uh, say over. So, you know, sometimes that's a deal breaker because, you know, say if the studio is $1,000 Canadian a day, and the band's got, you know, $5,000 to mix 10 songs. Well, yeah. there you go. They can't, yeah. e- they can't even afford the studio, let alone me. So, <laughs> right. so that's part of the problem. But, you know, just know you're getting the, the, the best quality. If you want to compete with the big boys, that's how you're going to do it. You know, I mean, there's been some decent sounding records that have all come out of home studios and mixed in the box. Um, but I say if you put those records up on a really good stereo system and compare it with stuff that were done, you know, in the bigger studios, you'll see, you'll hear the difference, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, that's why, you know, bands uh, pay guys like, uh, you know, George Marino at Sterling Sound mm-hmm. to master it. You know, I mean, and I, mm-hmm. I, th- you know, this was 20 years ago. We looked into it. You know, I think it was $20,000 just to open the door. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, uh, you know, he got crossed off the list pretty quick, you know, because, you know, an unsigned band just can't afford that if the label's not, not, you know, paying the freight, so to speak. But that's right. You know, the recording industry now, it it literally is if you don't hand in a finished product, you know, that's mixed, mastered, ready to be released, most labels won't look at you. So, right. uh, it's just a different time. It really is. Um, yeah, it certainly is. You know, I just got to sort of say to your listeners of that too, it's like, you know, the mixing and then mastering are the, the last two things in your chain. And that's where you don't want to cheap out. <laughs> right. You know, it's your fi- final chance to have it sounding as big and as, as nice and great or whatever as you want it to sound. Like you don't, and say months in your in your garage doing this and all your hard work and then just to have it sound like a little piece of tin you know so right if anyway you can you know can raise the money and get it to sound massive then i think it's worth it well it certainly is and you know uh last question that i'm gonna ask mm-hmm. um and i just want to know where you stand on this because um, again, your opinion means the world to me, but you know, in the last five to 10 years, we have gotten into the volume wars and, you know, uh. this, this is talked about quite a bit, you know, everybody thinks that getting their record so loud and they think it's just going to jump out of the speakers and, and bite you but you lose all of the dynamic, you know, they, they're just, they're compressing the, the snot out of their stuff, you know, trying to make it as loud as possible. Where do you stand on that, Mike? Well, we had our loud, loudest wars, you know, in the eighties and that, and, um, you know, vinyl was, was one thing you can only get it so loud on vinyl or literally the needle would start jumping off the grooves. The grooves would be too, too dynamic. So that was always limited, but on cassettes, there's a trick that you used to be able to do. Um, you just had to send a note to the, uh, the, uh, dis- uh, not the distribution, but the guys that would make all the cassettes, the plant. Um, if there was a loud thing and on, a, on their system, that the little red over- overload light went on, they would turn the whole record down. So you'd be able to write them a note saying, don't do that. So that got our cassettes a little louder. Because, you know, when you're playing something and then put your stuff in, if it's quieter and you got to lift it up, your initial reaction is, oh, it doesn't sound as good. So it's not true. But what's happened now that we're in digital world, you could, you could slam that stuff and, like you say, compress it, and it makes it sound way louder. Um, but that's because 
on your phone or on your laptop and all your little things you're playing it on, that translates to sounding better. But when you put it on a proper stereo system, which hardly anybody does anymore, let's be honest, <laughs> right? Um, it would sound like crap. So what's really uh, aggravated this loudness war is that everybody's listening to it on their phone and laptop. So they want it loud and they want to hear everything at the same volume. So you don't have any dynamics in a song anymore, uh, sonically anyways, you know. The uh, the hi-hat counting in the intro is the same volume as the, the big chorus. So uh, it just confuses me why people like that. But <laughs> Well, it, it confuses me as well. And, and you know, I, I don't want to bore you with, you know, podcast technical stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when mm-hmm. I mix down a show, there is, a, you know, a standard delivery for podcasts. It's negative 16 okay. luffs, you know, so I mix yep. everything to negative 16 luffs. But... When a band is recording, the the way that I grew up and learned is every time you you track a song and you get a mix together, you know, listen to it in your car, listen to it on a cheap boombox, listen to it on your home stereo, listen to it on your, you know, your your MP3 player, your computer, whatever. And you want to mix it so that it sounds great on all of those formats. Right. and I know that you do that. What are these other mix engineers doing? Are they just trying to, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's a bone of contention for me as a music listener. I hate to put on a record and it's just squashed and there's nothing yeah. dynamic about the music. Yeah, uh, it, it's frustrating for me, too. You know, I hear a lot of other guys stuff and I guess that's sort of the norm that everybody's trying to hit. But they want it to to sound like it's on the radio. So when they send their mix to the A&R guy at the label, he puts it in his you know computer or phone, wherever he's listening it on, and it's got to sound like it's on the radio. And that, you know, we all knew when we mixed our songs and it got to radio, radio would really change it with the heavy compression. Well, people now are addicted to that. So they want to hear that heavy compression even before it's on the radio. So, you know, yeah. and it's funny, like, oh, well, it seems like the radio stations in my area anyways have changed their EQ and compression to make these over-compressed things sound, you know, better. But now when a classic song comes on there, it sounds like crap because it's all wrong. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the the FM radio stations, you know, and we could talk about this for an hour and a half, but, you know, they spend yeah. millions of dollars for exciters and compressors and, 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 you know, and they're trying to broadcast that out, you know, a hundred miles or whatever. It, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I wish that you could mix everything. I'll just say that because <laughs> when I put on something that you've had your hands on, it's going to sound right. It's going to sound mm-hmm. the way it, it should sound. And Unfortunately, um, you know, uh, you said it earlier, I, I'm not trying to date you, but you said none of us are getting any younger. And, and that's mm-hmm. very true. I just hope that you're passing on your knowledge to the younger generation of engineers and, and mix guys so that we can have some decent sound in music for years to come. I, I certainly hope so. You know, I know uh, and I. You know, I can't really name names. I've forgotten them, but you know, I have a lot of uh, guys that assisted me over the years are now up and quite big engineering producer guys. So, you know, it, it makes me feel proud. It's almost like you know, seeing one of my little my sons or something taking on the family business and doing good. You know, so um, yeah, uh, you know, I hope they do. Uh, you know, I sort of hope that home theaters or home stereos, anyways make a bit of more of a comeback. I know vinyl's coming back, so there's got to be some kind of turntable uh, home system that people are buying now. And, you know, it's great to have it on your phone or, or on your computer because you could be mobile with all your MP3s. But I tell you, if you ever have a chance to to balance the levels of MP3 to even even a CD so that, you know, they're all both at the same volumes and then compare them, you'd be shocked at how lousy and mp3 sounds oh yeah now you know it it is convenient and that's why it's our number one thing but see i don't understand when radio stations make their carts up for for broadcast it's all mp3 oh sure they don't even they don't even do 44 one anymore and it's like 
why not? <laughs> right. Well, and it, it is the convenience factor, no doubt about yep. it. It's it's all about yep. what's easy, and you know, radio in in this day and age, you know, you have a central computer. <laughs> That each station mm-hmm. is kind of pulling from in, in the era of, you know, Cumulus and Clear Channel and iHeart and, you know, all these big mega companies, they're all mm-hmm. pulling their music off the Internet. I mean, that's that's yeah. really what's happening. Um, and, and, yeah. and it is a shame. Yeah. Mike, I have I have absolutely uh, dominated your morning out there in Vancouver. I appreciate it so much (laughs) you coming on the show. It's, it's really been educational and, you know, I think our listeners, you know, again, mostly drummers, but Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's always cool to hear how our heroes did it, you know, and, and the, the records that mean so much to us to get some of that behind the scenes stuff is just, it's fantastic. And I really appreciate you coming on and you're welcome on this program anytime. Um, Oh, great. Well, you know, thank you so much for the invite. Uh, I've had a blast talking, talking with you and it feels like we've only been talking for five minutes. So don't worry about my morning being lost here. It's uh, been a pleasure. I know it's it's amazing. I get on these uh, these calls to do these interviews and I'm like, I scheduled an hour. I want to go like three and a half. You know, it's it's just (laughs) because I learn so much. It's just so cool to uh, to to hear from, uh, you know, from a professional like you. But uh, Mike, uh, yeah, absolutely. Best of luck and keep us posted on all your projects and, and we'll have you back anytime your schedule allows. Oh, cheers. Let's do part two down the road. <laughs> Absolutely. Mike, thank you so much. Thank you, Jamie. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right, guys, that's going to wrap up episode number 19 of the Drum Shuffle. Many, many thanks to our guest, Mike Fraser. Just as you can tell, super nice guy. Mike got right back to me when I reached out to him and said, I'd love to, you know, and uh, he's just gotten some of those awesome drum sounds on those records that he's worked on. So we thank him for taking time out of his very busy schedule up in Vancouver to come on the drum shuffle and talk with us for for over an hour. We really do appreciate it. As always, we love hearing from you. Keep your emails coming. Uh, our email address is the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com send us your show suggestions questions we love getting uh, those emails throughout the week so keep those coming our web address of course is the drumshuffle.com you can find more information on me over at jamieeds.com we will continue to bring you uh, just wonderful guests on the drum shuffle we love getting these behind the scenes kind of looks and those are the types of questions that I try to ask in these interviews uh, so that we can all learn something together. That is our hope for this show. I sincerely thank you for tuning in. We can't do any of this without every single one of you guys. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers. Cheers.